Hey everybody, this is Brandon Buchanan. You probably haven't seen or heard the first of me for a little while, and life goes that way. I've just been doing a lot of work, doing a lot of organizing, doing a lot of cool secret projects with our best friend, Kennedy Cooper. Also doing a lot of secret projects with our best friend, Rachel, and just so much grinding and so little <laughs> you know, being in front of the camera and talking to you guys. But it's just been a whirlwind of a couple of weeks. Just from the time that we've recorded this, fucking Andrew Cuomo, ladies and gentlemen, we got him. He's marked his resignation paper. And hopefully by the time you're seeing this and hearing it, this guy is out of the building and we don't have to deal with him anymore. <laughs> We've also got, there was a DSA convention, fucking awful, thoroughly demoralizing experience in my opinion. But there are little nuggets of hope if you can sift through the radioactive waste. So we're going to do some sifting because that's what we do here. And it looks like the world is doomed. And it really says something about how jaded people are that like there was a major scientific report. And it's just like you guys head for high land. It's a wrap for the human race. But uh, nothing has changed. We can't really change shit. The only people who've changed anything are the Democratic Party. And they have decided to give more money to the cops. That's their climate change plan. There's a lot to talk about. And thankfully, I'm not here alone. We've got our guests from the very fun podcast, Greenhouse Gaslighting. I've listened to an episode or two. They're all right. Hey, Adi, come in and say hello to people. Hey, folks. Hey, Brandon. Thanks for having me on. It's so nice to head out of the greenhouse and into the doomed planet with the rest of y'all. I mean, we're in the midst of a heat wave. How hot is it? You're from Detroit, um, and you're a, you're a Michigan guy. Mm -hmm. Typically, when we think about Michigan, we don't think sweltering heat. So how much have you, how, what, have, what has the weather been like? How have y'all been surviving all that? So Michigan has very frantic weather in general. We are surrounded by the Great Lakes, so it contributes to something called the lake effect. Basically, the weather's always fucked up. It's more than usual lately. To give you guys a bit of context, we had a heat wave yesterday and we had a high heat advisory, which when I did live in Louisiana for a bit, that was normal. This is the first time I saw one of those in Michigan and it was so hot that we had a thunderstorm at 5 p.m. that day. And it sounded like uh, there were bombs going off at midnight with how loud this thunder was. So the entire planet is being touched by climate change. And in fact, I, I don't like the term climate change anymore. The climate has changed. Yeah, I, I personally think that we should be using fucking more jarring terms for what's happening right now. I mean, we talk ironically about like, haha, world doom, but like there are cataclysmic events happening around the world. And even like here in the Northern Hemisphere, where shit's supposed to be relatively stable, hurricanes, tornadoes, I go outside and it's absolutely sweltering. And unfortunately, like, it looks like there is not any real political momentum around mm -hmm. really putting a, a dent in this just because the people that are destroying the planet right now are underwriting the entire political system. I know that's not brand new news, but running into it over and over and over and over again as things are getting worse and worse and worse and worse, there seems to be no real ability to look at what the fuck is happening and evolve with the times. That's 100% correct, and I'm very glad that I'm talking to someone who's looking at the situation the same way, especially just with the last year or so. I know that people are done with the pandemic, but that's a separate point. But we are seeing unprecedented and regular levels of heat waves, forest fires, storm events. And if you combine that with elements like the pandemic, if you combine that with things like the militarization of the police, if you combine that with these ostentatious 
displays of wealth and inequality across the world and how much suffering is happening on a daily basis that we can't turn a blind eye to. And yet we're still expected to go clock in for our nine to five or we're expected to carry on and that we can't really take any radical action without pissing off at least a few people. To me, it's it's frustrating to look at a generation of kids and a generation of liberals raised on dystopian YA novels live through the same conditions that their literary heroes were stuck in and then say, you know, whole hog, well, this is fine. We just have to have faith in the system. And I think we've critically hit that point where we need top-down change. I think the critical mass has been reached. First of all, do you trust millennials to help with climate change? I know that a lot of people have said, well, millennials have been disempowered and downwardly mobile for most of their lives, and they've got natural allies in this younger generation. Maybe, but also, I don't know, if you are somebody that's going to be part of history's last generation with all these common resources and shit, maybe there's going to be a boomer-like mentality, like I don't have to cut off my water individually. Do you think that that generation is going to be of help or of detriment or something in between to the transformative political change that like we need to survive as a human race that's a very fun question you asked there um mainly because uh it gives me a chance to look at this both in terms of modern class dynamics and especially like generational politics we're all subject to every now and then and the thing about millennials and zoomers versus you know gen x and the boomers before them is yes they seem to be more aware of these situations but broadly speaking they're still consumers in america you do you get what i'm saying like having the right ideas or having the right approach or the right conception of of the ideal world doesn't necessarily mean that you're more likely or less likely to do the right thing that we need to do to protect the species right now. You know what I mean? And with particularly folks my our age, right? For the record, how old are you? I'm, I'm 25. Right. And I'm 35. So we're both in the same age bracket-ish. All right, yeah. continue. Yeah, yeah. So what I find interesting about folks in our situation and even younger is um, there's a sharper sense of paralysis almost. There's this sense of lacking agency, of lacking any ability to feel like anything they'll do is going to make an impact here. And I gotta, I gotta be honest, it's not the most incorrect assessment of the situation. Now, that being said, I think a lot of people do get hung up in certain exercises of taking on the world's problems as their own or feeling like them as an individual is personally responsible for the situation that we're in as a society. But I think this is those times where it's important to recall that 70% of emissions are coming from corporations right now, right? And that's the part of this that needs to be examined is that as American consumers, we're all tied to this mechanism of insane production and insane consumption. And with the boomers and Gen X, they sort of cowed themselves into this position, but they truly believe this is the best one. And with millennials and folks younger than them, there is this sense of being so tied to the generational decisions of the people that came before them, the class dynamics that that creates, the realities of 
who holds material property and power and how that trickles down. And it creates this hyper anxiety almost, right? That I, I feel it. I know you feel it of like, you see, you're seeing it go down. You know that even if you don't have all the answers, you and like five friends could figure out a better solution in, in, in like 10 days. But at no point in any of the mechanisms of power around you, whether it's voting, whether it's joining a, some kind of organization or making those impassioned pleas on social media like everyone does, that it's going to have any concrete impact. You kind of know implicitly that there is a system that needs to be reformed from the top down. And the people in charge of that system have insulated it so well that outsiders can't challenge it and that they themselves are resistant to change. So the question for millennials is not just, are we going to fight the hardest to save the planet, but to save the planet, it requires a certain degree of literally transforming our economic relationships to one another and to the world. And how I've been looking at this, you know, let me get away from the material perspective a little bit, is like, there's almost like an algorithmic way that capitalism operates. It doesn't make sense. All these guys have enough money to put away for like 20 years. They could like just stop the operations that they're running and coast off of their wealth for a bit right but they won't stop so it has this like inhuman unnatural drive to like keep on going regardless of what people think of it the opposite of that in my opinion is how nature and life on earth operates there are these complex ecosystems these complex geological and oceanic and weather conditions that just exist in perpetuity there's complex ecosystems and all these organisms you know interacting in complex ways with one another and all of them have roles in it and for life to persist it leaves a bit of an impact on the planet but like things like forests like leave like these foot prints that are positive and even like human life i don't think is an inherently negative thing but it is the direct diametric opposite of that algorithmic capital I'm describing. You know what I mean? And it kind of feels like if we want to come out of this conflict between these two fighting opposites, if we want the option where we get to keep what's good and we get to keep our souls, we want nature to win. What brought you to the road of making that declaration? When we started talking, you talked about just being a regular Dem supporter. Tell me about like your political evolution and what are the major things that had to sink in with you to think, okay, we need, I mean, I don't want to put the phrase spiritual transformation in your mouth, but that is kind of what it sounds like. I believe that. And like, I know that the term spiritual transformation can be alienating to some folks or it can leave a negative taste. So if anyone like listening to this wants to reword that to something they find more effective, whether they find something like mindset or framework more effective, that's a good way to metabolize it. But spiritual transformation is the one I agree with because it's a literal matter of things you feel. It's not just that we do need like cold and hard material analysis of the situation we're in because that helps us perceive perceive these abstract human structures that we build in our heads as something real. That's why it's necessary, right? But where this comes from for me, right, is, and I, I'm going to tell a little bit of my life story, so I'll try to be brief. But I was born and raised here, but I had the chance to move back to India, which is where my parents are from, for a couple years. And during that time, actually, I didn't have a humanities education for the longest time, but I had that childhood interest in animals and the environment, and I always knew that that's 
something I wanted to get into, but I had no safer outside of science. I had no humanities based or some kind of deeper conception for things. And my parents were deeply spiritual people. They moved back to India for spiritual reasons. And I was surrounded by some of that stuff. Not all of it took for a variety of reasons. And I think it's one of those things that you have to develop personally for yourself, whatever that is for you. But getting a chance to move back to the United States and finally having a chance to have a humanities education. I think it was like, <laughs> I took AP US history when I moved back and that's what helped me start to conceive of some of this stuff. And then in my university program, I did take hard science, but I minored in poli sci and those things started to uh, give me a framework for it. But some of these frameworks exist in the purview of pop liberalism, really, right? And I had these assumptions about how people make decisions and how people act derived from those conclusions. So me coming in and understanding why and how climate change operates, how and why it's bad, I come in with this assumption of you can't say that people are going to die. You need to come up with something better than that. So then you have to invent bullshit arguments. Or you take it the other way and you get into like pop Democrat stuff, which is what I got sunk into, which is it's these guys in the South amorphously mentioned who are conservative and they won't let us have the good things. I mean, that is literally true. In, in a sense, it is, <laughs> yes. But it's like, you have to dig a little deeper because it's like, yes, there's chuds who like vote for those guys. But those chuds are kind of responding in some sense. Not, I'm, not I'm not letting them off the hook. Of course. But it's the guys who hold the levers of power. I don't think they really believe what they say to get the, ch the vote of a chud. But they know it's profitable in the short term to take those actions. So they'll say whatever they need to say to make that happen. But the thing is, if you're coming at environmental protection or mitigating climate change or these host of issues, and you take that like popular American assumption of write to your senator about it or like get involved with like a local campaign or something, something like that, you think, and especially like I see this with how environmental orgs like Sierra Club or uh, League of Conservation Voters will like sink their resources into the Democratic Party. Oftentimes it's because that's the only game in town. I mean, there's really only two parties. And if one of them says they're against it, where else are you going to go? Well, I mean, with that as your big cliffhanger, we can talk <laughs> so, about, well, let's talk about the Democrats even more because I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. even driving that point home, this Cuomo shit, I mean, this guy was a governor and I think all of that pop liberalism that you were talking about, Cuomo is the idol of pop liberalism. This guy, you know, was on TV doing his daily press conferences. And I think a lot of people for reasons that I don't understand, I think they just were terrified of Trump projected all of their West Wing fantasy onto this clearly fucking awful guy like just this wasn't like below the radar just an openly awful bad governor that was like completely botching the covid response got all of those old mm -hmm. people huddled up in those nursing homes fatality rate through the roof writing himself congratulatory books on leadership and like sexually harassing many many people we had lindsey boylan on the show and we still hang out she hasn't been on the show like in a long time just because life's super busy and we haven't asked mm -hmm. but we do talk and when she did an interview with us last year we talked about this fake party that cuomo invented that was called like the new york women's party or something that he mm. basically made up from full scratch just to endorse him against a woman candidate that was running against him cuomo has had a long long list of just openly bad decisions but was just hyped in the media yep 
And I think it's good that we took the segue because now you understand the trap that I was in. And some of these people, you know, are definitely cynical. Some of these people are definitely rubes at times. But when you're stuck in that relationship of where else am I going to go politically speaking with my issue, you start to believe some of the hype and you start to believe these guys have your back. And with a guy like Cuomo, I mean, they're kind of a dying breed, right? I mean, the only other guy like this in the Democratic Party that I can think of is uh, Rahm Emanuel, you know, like these kind of tough guy, asshole Democrats who people think are charismatic. And people like that because they, first of all, it's not about being tough and standing up to the Republicans, I don't think. I think it's really never, about never about that. Because, like, they say it sometimes, like, boy, Rahm Emanuel, he's a fighter. But really, like, there are so many people, like, r- no one's ever saying, boy, that Rashida Tlaib is tough on Republicans. <laughs> it seems like just the open willingness to capitulate and protect the status quo is just what drives a lot of the fandom in mainstream blue wave emoji democratic fundraising circles because first Mm -hmm. of all those folks are just incredibly traumatized i think just by losing to the republicans over and over again it's funny you mentioned that actually because i've um had discussions with more solidly democrat aligned family members and they literally cite that as a reason for why they believe in this centrist realignment of the Democratic Party. They really do hold on to this idea of like, either they believe themselves that they're traumatized by Reagan's success, or they believe what someone told them about that, and then take the route of, well, you have to understand, they're traumatized by Reagan. And it's this kind of like, it's almost like uh, in like dysfunctional families when there's like an elder who acts and speaks out of turn, and they use their people, you know, people will make excuses or enable it. It's like that. Yeah, totally. So listen, all of that makes perfect, perfect sense. So once you were thoroughly disillusioned, and I mean, we could go even further, all this stuff with Cory Booker this week. Oh my God, I forgot about that. Yeah, like, and for people who don't know, Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville, I'll never get tired of saying that. I can't even keep up with you. Yeah, football coach, not that great. But anyway, wrote a bill punishing localities for defunding their police districts in a country where, and when we talk about defunding, we just mean like giving them less money than they have. It's kind of funny that that, that's the one. How much more money do they need? I mean, I mean, our police department has a third of the budget. I feel like it's just like the military at home where it's like, boy, all of our civil spending goes to this. But with that being said, Cory Booker eagerly jumped on and in a line that I think will just be repeated forever in history as the world goes off edge was like, Republicans can't run negative ads about us now. And isn't that just the Democratic Party in a nutshell? Because like, honestly, that is a trauma response, right? Like we're talking about- yeah, I mean, like, it, we're talking about, like, these this older generation and their policies being driven by trauma. The fact that a United States senator is talking about, like, boy, I hope that the other party doesn't compete with us for power. That guy's traumatized. Yeah, yeah. And I think, like, it's good that you brought up the Booker example. And I'm, I'm really sorry that I'm not being a good guest right now. Like, I'm kind of leaving open threads everywhere. So I'm going to help you pick those back up. That's my um, job. You're not the host today. I'm supposed to be who's driving the bus here. Don't you worry about it. I was it. lighting some of that green in the gas house. You got to forgive me. Um, That's right, baby. Um, no, but seriously, like these will pick up, dear listener. I promise I would, this will be coherent again. And it, the thing about Cory Booker in this case is that he's the other type 
like Andrew Cuomo, Rahm Emanuel are the one type of male Democrat. But then the other type of male Democrat is Cory Booker in that like they think by catering to all the right wing criticism they got that they've somehow like dunked on them. And it's it's a symptom of that West Wing brain. You know what I mean? Of just like, well, if they have a problem with it, we'll just do it. And then what are they going to say about that? And it's like they got what they wanted. They got what they wanted. And then to use their language, I don't like it is like they're going to call you a cuck in response. And it's it's one of those funny things where like they like the trauma response. It's spineless behavior is really what it is. There's no real coherent plan that the Democrats really take because when an issue happens, pressure is put on them by people from their left or people from their progressive flank, quote unquote, to put pressure on the issue. Let's say so. Let's say like last year when it was uh, defunding the police, reforming the police. However, people choose to frame that issue. That's where the pressure initially began, and they were already sitting on their hands because it's like this whole right-wing alignment with the police was too scary for them and they were already making this we're gonna lose people in the suburbs claim you know what i mean but their own donors aren't necessarily those kinds of people at times so it's 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 frustrating to see this kind of like idea of them personally wanting to do all the things the republicans want to do coming up with a reason like well that would be unbecoming of us or that would be against the process or it violates norms to not do it, then the people who do make up their base or people who would be the people helped by their action no longer share that loyalty to them because they get hurt by that. And then the people on further to the right who are solidly in the Republican side of this, I mean, they're never going to talk to you in the first place. So why do you keep trying to win their affection and approval? It, it, it's perfectly dysfunctional behavior in that sense. So there are like people in these circles who are loyal to Democrats who see this kind of Cory Booker behavior. And then for whatever reason, they feel a kinship with like a Rahm Emanuel or God, type. I can't believe I forgot his name again. Um, I mean, you could say Joe Manchin. You could say Claire. Man- right. You want to go back. In my day, we had and I fucking, I'm not that old. Harold Ford Jr. of Tennessee. You could name a dozen people who are just Joe Lieberman. Go back forever. Right, right. And it's like, because you see this clip out of context of them like acting sternly and like decisively with someone. And then if you look into the full story, you realize like, actually, that person was completely innocent and making up a good point. And they got cussed out for no reason by this like senseless politician, right? And I mean, there's that what was that incident of like Rahm Emanuel using the R slur in response to progressives who were asking for like very concrete demands? I think there's one of those incidents. Yeah. And then, yeah, with Cuomo is like, 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 if you look at some of this editorializing around Cuomo, people talk about him like he's a very uh, old fashioned man, very assertive. I don't find him assertive in the least. What I find is he's whining with a masculine affect. But people mistake that for strength these days. You know what I mean? And um, when guys act like that and they employ it to those ends, it's disastrous. And I mean, if you take a look at his policy with COVID, the disaster caused by letting it flood into nursing homes. And again, like New York City was in a hellscape because of COVID. And they had a chance with the initial round of vaccines because the strategy with a vaccine, I know there was that policy to get it out to elderly people first. Who cares? Who cares if it like, 
like got in the hands of people who didn't qualify as old. If the whole point of the vaccination attempt was to give it to as many people as possible so we could get back to a semblance of normal, wouldn't you want to incentivize that at some level? Or would, would you need to be punitive about it? And that was the thing that I didn't understand was like Cuomo was willing to let precious quantities of the first couple doses of this vaccine to just rot to adhere to this norm instead of save lives. And it was because he could project this strong ban to a certain class of uh, very unwell people. It was okay, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So listen, now that we've just thoroughly, and you've never, ever heard of a Republican senator talking about, boy, once we all support this, like imagine some Democrat from California having some kind of fucking initiative. You know, now that we've all, boy, Ted Kennedy, great job with, and it would always be something really basic, like, good job with this give preschool children food bill. I hope that no Democrat attacks us now that we've support, like you'd never hear that. They'd be like, I heard a Democrat wanted to feed kids in preschool. I'm against that on principle just because they want it. I wish that like the Democrats were thinking about this police stuff in the same way that Republicans thought about Al Gore and climate change. Like it's tragic because it's just, it's literally destroying the world. But mm -hmm. like these guys saw this guy, guy talking about like existential threat to the world and they mobilized against him both as a part as an individual and they attacked the bill and they drug it out and made it like as hard as possible for public awareness to be spread. That was not ever going to become a bipartisan thing. It's weird that the Democrats are just eagerly looking for police brutality to become like we all support it. Because when we talk about like one of the first things that we did as a show when we were like covering the uprising we did an hour-long episode on police unions because anybody that talks about like why is there no just like we have all this stuff on video we have all this evidence we have this like large amounts of the public are seeing this stuff and are all outraged why does not not translate to the actual legislation and the actual public consciousness and it's literally because like so much of the budgets in all of these cities go toward protecting these institutions and so if you're not really talking about breaking these this group up that has a monopoly on state violence and protects itself if you're not talking about regulation what are you talking about that's 100% correct. And like, we see this in more than just local policing. I mean, at a national defense level, I mean, we've made all kinds of bizarre military units like JSOC and uh, the Green Berets and stuff that explicitly operate outside of some of these congressional limits that operate outside of the force of law at times and are very shady in how they operate. And I'm not really sure if post 9-11 is really the time this kicked up because the war on on drugs is probably the first salvo in like really militarizing the police. But there is this bizarre mentality on how government exercises its monopoly on power these days. And there is a tendency, and this is bipartisan, so really Republicans and Democrats are guilty in this sense, but it's the most, it happened around the, the real neoliberal turn, right? At least if I'm conceiving of this correctly. The most staunch adherence of neoliberalism. So Joe Biden at the prime of the drug war and when he proposed all that stuff is responsible for this new turn in policing. And it's it's incredibly monstrous. It's, it's unchecked at this point because it doesn't make sense what they're protecting. It doesn't make sense 
whose property and whose monetary value is being protected here at this point anymore. It doesn't make sense why petty crime is so heavily targeted, especially when there's better things for them to do. It doesn't make sense why cities and municipalities with strapped budgets that can't have educational programs at schools like sports or after school programs or communities that have had to shut down things like community centers and libraries or at least like even in well-off areas, you see this sometimes. Sometimes of like they'll have parks that have to get privatized because there's this combination of one we're just running out of money to be to be made, but also this turn against investing in our communities and investing in our cities and towns. That it's this just growing machine, it's this growing mass. And to what end it serves, it's not even clear anymore. Aside from, you know, yes, it's racist, yes, it's classist, that's of course what it exists to do, but it's amorphous at this point. Tell me about how you joined DSA. Tell me that whole part of the story. Sure. I mean, 2018 is like when I graduated and then 2019 I started work, but I was kind of all over the place. So I didn't have time to really invest myself in a certain project. I was sinking into socialism, very good kind of sinking. So 2021, I finally had some stability in my life. And then I decided like, okay, let me join this year. Let me interact with folks who are like-minded to some extent. And maybe let me try to join a collective project instead of just posting and complaining about it all the time. So I just bit the bullet signed up, paid the dues. It was really just a matter of me getting over being burned by the Democrats and being like, okay, I see some of the drama on social media. I see some of the complaints, but this is where the people are. This is where the numbers are. Let me just see what this is all about. That's really what prompted me to get to DSA. How's the Detroit local been? Is it welcoming? Is it fun? Do you like it? Do you like the direction they're going in? All that good shit. Yeah, I think it's a it's a good chapter. Thankfully, my experience has not been plagued by some of the drama and some of the nightmare stories you hear about other chapters. So it has been good in that respect. And they have their priorities on straight sometimes, and they're more welcoming to folks who even aren't directly in the Detroit area at times. So they're very collaborative. They're a very good bunch, and they're trying to do the best for their community. Why they chose to let a new new member like me join their convention delegation, I'm not sure. So anything, if we do end up talking about the convention, I did want to say that what I say doesn't reflect on the rest of my chapter. This is all me speaking. I fucking strongly believe that the like fuck you should be at the fucking convention dude like first of all hard to get new people involved in this kind like this is my first time going to the convention i fucking let let a delegation we're just evolving politically really rapidly and honestly like most of us who are going to that shit are filling multiple roles like a fully mature organization would not have like the same people who are doing fucking street actions and doing the steering committee and being on some other subcommittee and being a delegate right like that's a lot number one and number two and this is just fucking me talking here i don't really feel that like in our arguments or our discussions it reflected the average concerns of people now some of those things are necessary but like there were so many resolutions 38 of them right that if you read them to a regular working person even you know what is our social organization doing they would be like 
dude, this is not a good productive use of time. I don't need to shout out every single resolution, but so many of these electoralism, start a third party amendments that drag, that just added hours of waiting to this convention that were all voted mm-hmm. down. Like, what are we, like, can we control this shit? Just in terms <laughs> of the, t- just in terms of the time commitment, dude, it was just so brutal. It was, it was. And like, I had to back out of the last day of the convention. Cause like in between like personal issues and like work, I, I was being stretched pretty thin at work while, uh, participating in the convention and the convention is stressful, but, you know, you think it's like, well, it's virtual. It won't be stressful this year, but like tensions are so high that you feel like you're in a tense room. And then on like Saturday night, yeah. like the rest of my delegation was like, Hey, do you want to come out for this little party or something? And I'm like, yeah, I'll come through. I get in the car. I start driving. And I'm like, I can't, I fucking, I'm like, my head is spinning. Let me turn around. I can't do this. And it's, it's again, like one of the things I heard from a fellow delegate when we were decompressing about it was because I told them that I had this idea that I wanted to go to the 2021 convention as this idea of maybe getting some clarity on where we're all at, trying to figure out what our clearer goals are, especially post Bernie, right? We don't have a clear idea of what the left is, where it should be going no no one really has an idea about that and they had they had a good idea i think them explaining it this way made more sense than what i was thinking which is you know a biannual convention is more of a ritual than it is a place to get clarity so i almost wonder to some extent should i have been more calm or more gentle in my expectations of what i expected there that's a good question. I will say I messed up because I took my best friends to the convention. That was a bad strategy. Ooh. Like my best friends in the organization who were like, you know, hey, and especially because it's like people look like, you know, it's me. So it's people from the streets. It's moms. It's the people that DSA says they want but don't actually make room for because they're busy trying to take over the world or whatever. So well, and this is what, what do you think of this assessment too? That like DSA is mostly like a college educated crowd. It's people who have already been acculturated into things like knowing and reading about elections or understanding shit like political columns or knowing what fucking Roberts rules is. Like these are things that are not as accessible to working and struggling people in, in this country. You know what I mean? White people in this fucking organization have all kinds of fucking essays when you tell them there's a fucking class gap in the organization. <laughs> They've got all kinds of will. When you look at uh, the statistics of America as a whole, first of all, your socialist organization should not have the exact demographics of America. That's actually really bad. That's like a sign of panic. Your organization that's supposed to be a people's organization. You know, if I did a poll and looked at the Poor People's Campaign or Roots Action, maybe not Roots Action, but like most grassroots groups. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think would have different demographic unless they're like really elite NGOs um, with like eight people in it mm-hmm. and they're all rich, like a pack or something. But like, mm-hmm. dude, if I go and look at any of these mutual aid groups or any of these groups that were out on the streets, if I go look at the uprising, dude, I don't see a lot of student high college grads there. Yeah, I think there is a big cultural gap and it's also college grads and it's also based on free time. So that's another thing that's yeah. like bumping out your, you know, somebody that's got a job from nine to five, they're supposed to come home and do an hour on their branch or their committee. Doesn't make sense. Like it's, it's a, it's a high gap. And also as the organization gets larger 
credentialism becomes a problem. I looked at that NPC election and everybody was running was like, I spearheaded a major program in my city. Oh, I've run the growth and development mission. <laughs> I ran the Green New Deal. So like all of this is like, all right, you've climbed a tremendous ladder of free time to be here, which is like, you know, it's a volunteer organization and that's fine. But like, I'm looking at a thing with 16 spots and only 20 people running outside of a whole country. Like what is happening? 100%. And I, I like that you describe this as a surplus of free time, because when we were talking earlier about like this sense of, you know, the world is burning around me and I can't do anything about it. It's like, how can you? You got to show up to work. Otherwise, like you're fucking on like fired and like shit could get worse. You got to go deal with these 10 bureaucratic things or like shit's going to get worse. Add that with like, you know, personal or family drama. Add that with like other shit you got going on in your life. And like, how could you even be expected? to then have the times like, well, we'll go, go to the VSA general body meeting and uh, we're going to talk about why the Green New Deal is a good thing. It's clearly a good thing, but like, what's the old adage? Beware of a socialist who enjoys going to meetings. That applies. That applies heavily here. I mean, I could go and talk about how we've got one meeting a month that's the general meeting. And I don't think that the general meeting is really a good device for members. We basically have yeah. our member recruitment meeting and our member business meeting, and they're once a month and they're in the same meeting. That makes no sense. I know that's a whole detail that everybody hasn't reflected on. But like, if you're trying to bring people in to this thing, like how many people come to those meetings and are like, not for me, kind of boring and don't come back. Like how many people of color are at your general meetings for you to even make the sales pitch to? And how many of them even are in the position in their life where they can have that kind of free time? Because free time is a very bourgeois luxury. It's one of those things where it's like having the free time to fill out a form or having the free time to be on a phone tree with like an insurance provider or something can be, you know, the difference between being in an irreparable amount of debt for some medical procedure and having a minor inconvenience in your day. And it's just one of those things where the convention itself and the kinds of concerns that were being addressed and the kinds of concerns that took up all this time. Like, first of all, I do come from like a nerd of like, like that nerd background, but how the fuck could you expect anyone to care? about knowing what emotion is, knowing how to do all these different motions. How could you expect anyone who is over there just trying to like come to the convention and be like, hey, can we get money for an office in our location? Something like that. And then there's just people holding up the line over credentials or over an amendment or over their pet resolution. You know what I mean? And it's not that people can't learn, like the counter argument to that is always, are you saying that people working with a job can't learn <laughs> Robert's rules? And like, yeah, man, black folks can do fucking anything. But the thing is, it's got to be some kind of fucking incentive structure. If somebody comes to an organization trying to save fucking humanity, they come here and, you know, they've got to learn Robert's rules in order to get the organization to take part in the struggle in their neighborhood. And know about all this DSA drama, all yeah. the factionalism, know about yeah. all this stuff. They got to learn the fucking backstory of Bread and Roses before you can, you know, vote on YDSA. You've got to know fucking deep lore to know what side you're supposed to be on on a lot of this shit. And honestly, like, the struggle is happening fucking out in the streets, whether one particular organization sends 20 people to Canvas or not, right? Just, like, if you're a person that's on the streets, the street, the work is still happening on the streets, whether mm -hmm. DSA takes a presence there or 
or doesn't. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. If, so if you are not vibing with what DSA is doing at any time, like the work is still there. So it's just a matter of like, will you guys naturally choose that work or are we, you know, talking about the Green New Deal this week? I don't know. It's tough and frustrating, but there were positive things in the convention though, right? I mean, despite the fact that there was like an in-group in the organization that wanted to stretch things out as long as possible. And there were in-groups in the organization that ran really hideous harassment campaigns. And also there were there were grievance issues. There are lots of internal cultural issues. But it seemed like when they held votes that the results of the votes reflected some amount of good sense. Yeah, I think that's correct. I think like uh, with, you know, not to bring the New Deal, Green New Deal into this again, but at least like it having no motion, like uh, people speaking against was a good idea. I think the push towards an internationalist approach is good. I know that was a bit of a controversial decision with my chapter, but I think it's one of those considerations of living in a world that's bigger than you that's worth making, even if you don't necessarily like how they went about it. I think, again, just the push to get things like matching funds for chapters to open their offices and stuff those those are pushes in in the right direction but it kind of just felt at least for me full of sound and fury signifying nothing and i guess it just comes back to that fact of like me having this expectation of like i was gonna get some clarity about where do we go from here from the convention and that question was not answered at any point the question of where do we go what is our scope who do we want to lead and who do we want to promote and support I'll tell you, I think that that all starts right now. There are like 16 people on the MPC, and as usual, DSA passed like 20 conflicting resolutions saying that we want to do everything, right? Mm -hmm. The NPC is in charge of actually setting the priorities based on what they can do. So I think that if you strongly supported a resolution, and our voting system is really click-based, I don't even mean that in a positive or negative way, it is built to, quote-unquote, encourage minority voices, which ironically the minorities in the organization are so broad and universally appealing that and not ranked very highly that a couple of them got left off the damn ballots in the finalists era entirely but the voting system is really designed so that every faction can be represented and so every faction has representation on the npc and over the next couple of years there's going to be figure out who's going to get these resources and like talk to someone at national and make sure that they're doing something that helps the work of your chapter. Is there anything aside from that office funds? And I assume is Detroit going to fundraise and fight to get an office? Is there anything else that you are excited about coming out of the convention? I, I hate to say it. I mean, I'm not sure. Like, I kind of feel like everyone that people are saying, like, this will be good. I'll take their word for it just as a new member in all of this. But I think I, I probably came into this with high expectations. Like, I really thought, like, this would come out as a more unified thing. So I can't say that I'm really, com- you know, I'm coming off of this very excited for much, you know? Yeah, this wasn't, I mean, aside from the internationalism thing, which was a big vote that a lot of people were very passionate about. And also, I mean, the multiracial organization thing. That is a net good. That is a net good, but it's kind of bare minimum for my taste. You know what I mean? It is bare minimum. It's flexible. I think that it was kind of written from a position of fear. I think they were worried about people whipping against it because it it appoints a ruling diversity council or whatever. And they haven't, there's no um, real metrics yet. There's no real punishment authority that they have. It's just, Mm -hmm. can, it's just giving them the authority to set guidelines for chapters. 
chapters. So aside from that, I mean, it just feels like we are continuing the process. Obviously, we did a lot of budgetary stuff, but uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think of it as like an election that was conclusive or cathartic. Mm-hmm. It's just the struggle continues, and I think we're seeing that everywhere in city council elections and in national and in local campaigns. Mm-hmm. There are there have been no easy victories. Put it like that. Absolutely, absolutely agree with that. Dude, why are we not hanging out on audio more? This seemed like a. This has been a really good vibe. This has been a good vibe. I'm I'm worried I was a little disaffected and just like all over the place. If you like that though, <laughs> and I can I just tell you like I've been thinking about this a lot. We've all all the brown people have got to be openly disaffected. There's like a whole <laughs> rah, there's got to be there you know that whole fucking rah rah. We're all building the power to win the world and shit. I can't keep that up. I can't like because then you just come off of like as like Gazi Kadzo. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, like, I'm not. I am not in a cult. Like if I don't like <laughs> something, I will just fucking not like it. If you are not able to just say you don't like something, especially because bad shit, like it's not like it's just all bad shit. But some bad shit happens around here, and so if something happens like this fucking harassment campaign that was run against a couple members of Renewal, I'm looking around for like who sees that this is fucked up, or I mean just any organizational priority like who's holding the group hive mind to account and it shouldn't be our jobs to do that shit i i agree with you but it's not your job like we don't have a job to wave the fucking pom-poms for this shit either Mm-hmm. And that's how I feel about this is like I joined DSA and I don't even know that this factional shit goes on in the background. And then like coming to convention, I see it all play out. And really all I see play out is just factional shit. Now, could you say that the factions have concrete disagreements over what the scope and decisions DSA makes are? Yeah, that's a realistic difference that evolves. But I still don't get what they all stand for. I don't get the backstories. And to top it off, I have no interest. Like if 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 it matters i'm independent of all of it not that i think yeah, it does real cool. so listen this has been good this has been great tell people where they can find you uh, and and can listen and follow and do all that good shit yeah uh you can follow me personally on twitter at fibonacci sniper and you can follow the show greenhouse gaslighting at at pod greenhouse we're on pretty much all the apps uh you can find us anywhere and yeah i will plug our detroit for all fundraising link as well uh so give our candidates a little support and we have some uh political education events so i'll link those as well all right well that's it hey thank you for coming by actually like Come back. I say this all the time, but this has been real nice. And I haven't done any any episodes in a while. So it was good to sit down and decompress with like a regular ass dude. I appreciate that. I'll be back anytime you need me. All right. You can support our great podcast. We're notsafemedia.com. We're at NSF Wonks on Twitter. You can follow me. I'm at Brandon Buchanan. And it's just a good vibe. So let's keep it moving. I'll talk to you again in a while. Bye-bye.